Case file number 7.3, Pi Pi in the face. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. You gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No. Nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No. How is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one. The other one. Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Ymir. Hmm? You remember, it came up during the podcast, about the guy who took down like a, a JavaScript package and it ruined a bunch of things on the, on the internet for like that day? Yeah, that sounds, yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you the whole story now. Oh, sweet. The guy's name was um, Azure Coclude. Uh, Coclude. I, I went and I made sure I had the pronunciation and blanking on it now. Uh, anyway, in March 2016, this all went down. And mm-hmm. he was a an evangelist for using NPM, the JavaScript package manager. Uh, he had a bunch of projects. And one of those projects was a project called Kik, K-I-K. Yep. And it was used for kickstarting other development projects. Uh, and he'd been working on it for a little while. He had kick and, da- and kick-starter. Well, there's an instant messaging app named kick that has the trademark. Mm, okay, okay, because I knew I knew this name, so I wasn't sure, but I heard his thing. About, okay. So they had a lawyer. Uh, I think his name was, uh, I actually don't have the lawyer's name on my, on my notes. It was like Ben or Bob Studden. Well, so he was basically working as a contractor to kick. He wasn't working okay. directly for them, but he basically sent down, sent over a message to, to Azure saying, hey, we want to release a package and it looked like an SDK or something for the Kick platform. Would you mind renaming your package? And he said, no, nah, <laughs> I'm good. Right. One of the articles I said, and it looked like it was quoting, said something along the lines of, well, we have the trademark and we'll go after you with flesh eating lawyers. Flesh eating lawyers is 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 a little bit of hyperbole, but he it was a non-trivial, like, we're gonna send the lawyers after you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Started with not to be a dick, and then and and uh as you start responded with, Well, you are being a dick. <laughs> <laughs> and no. Anyway, so Final word on it, uh, as Ezra said, that he let them buy it from him for $30,000 for, and I quote, the hassle of giving up my pet project for a bunch of corporate dicks. Okay. So, Kick appealed to NPM. And NPM isn't like a public service mm-hmm. or a nonprofit. It's a company based in Oakland. So, the way that they say it, and 
who knows if money was involved. But the way that they say it is if a developer looks for the kick package, they're going to be expecting the kick the company's stuff, not this development um, mm. Kickstarter package. Right. So they reassigned the name Kick to the company Kick. Mm, mm-hmm. Well, Azure was like, screw you guys. I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. Mm-hmm. The quote was, the situation made me realize that NPM is someone's private land where corporate is more powerful than the people. I do open source because power to the people. Right. So he just took down all 273 of his npm packages yes okay now i'm remembering exactly what oh we we're talking about this <laughs> yeah so yeah. he just he took them all down in fact uh-huh. uh in one of the articles i read he was like so how do i do this quickly and one of the top guys at npm isaac uh said yeah here's the one-liner to do it <laughs> so customer service um, yeah. and he did it he just took all that stuff down now, the problem became that there was a little package in there. It's only 11 lines of code called left pad. Mm-hmm. Now, there's probably technical situations where you need this kludge. And there were probably a lot of situations that people were using this package because they didn't want to format their HTML to left justify. Mm-hmm. But it just added spaces to the string to left justify a um, string within within the string. So okay. you said I have 15 characters in an eight going into an 80 character space. It will just add the spaces for me, right? Rather than left justifying the the actual field. Mm-hmm. And there's probably situations where that's not just a I don't want to mess with or I don't know how to mess with the the formatting code, but the formatting co- code is a pain itself, and you just need to do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was only 11 lines of code, but a lot of people used it. By a lot of people be- used it is the month prior to it being taken down, it was downloaded two and a half million times. <laughs> Jesus. So he just took it down, and it's only this little thing. But it turns out that it was used in a lot of builds for a lot of stuff. Mm. One of the really important JavaScript fa- frameworks that is that is being used for a lot of active web applications is a framework called React. Like okay. it's, it's very widely used. Another framework that's less popular but also used this was Atlas. And then the entire um, Babel build framework was also also used this. Okay. Like there was a lot of stuff. This was this had a non-trivial impact on the internet for that one day. <laughs> I mean not as bad as we've talked about like when there were routing problems in when I was talking about the internet. Like those were bigger problems. Like when when um, Iran um, started routing all of, um, I think it was WhatsApp or YouTube. Mm. No, it was YouTube to them by mistake. Mm. That Gosh. would have been a bigger impact. But like right. this was this was noticed. This was news <laughs> um, because whenever they ran the build, the uh, build system tried to fetch left pad and it wasn't there. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Because he just took it down. He deleted everything. Right. It wasn't just that he abandoned it. He took his ball and went home. Yeah. And that's what took it from a unfortunate and maybe maybe a little unfair, definitely kind of dickish uh, thing, and mm-hmm. blew up the whole internet. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because it wasn't just the fact that it broke this. It was that people were like, oh, wait, this can happen. Mm -hmm. So un-PM in an unprecedented move in order to ameliorate the chaos that had happened, uh, un-unpublished the left pad package. Okay. All of the source code that Azure had was on GitHub. So it's not like he stopped publishing. He stopped publishing it on NPM. Okay. Yeah. So it's not like there was necessarily a copyright thing for them to stop providing it, but it was definitely an unprecedented move. Mm, but yeah. it brings us to kind of that software supply chain thing. It's a weird thing because in order to do modern development, modern web application development, especially, you have to use all these packages from these package sources. The two ones that we're going to talk mostly about today are PyPy, which I believe I have referred to as PyPL before because nobody uses serif fonts anymore and I couldn't <laughs> tell the difference. I must have made that mistake several times over, over a few years because um, I'm an old Perl guy and I'm still trying to, to become a Python guy. <laughs> It's not that I've done nothing in, in 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 Python, but I'm still not nearly as comfortable right, because yeah. I'm old. And you know, who likes object oriented? Um, <laughs> well, that's a whole other thing. There's a whole debate that I barely understand um, between <laughs> object oriented and fund functional programming, and there those are words that I know. Um, yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> so you have a huge amount of software products that are going around that make use of at least some open source stuff that nobody con contributes back to the open source projects. Right, yeah. A lot, bunch of things that are maintained by Apache. Nobody gives money back to Apache. Now, mm -hmm. to Red Hat's credit, Red Hat has sponsored and paid a bunch of kernel developers, notably, mm -hmm. to do kernel maintenance stuff for Linux. Um, but like that's exceptional because it's you know abnormal. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, in a lot of ways, they're free riders on the open source thing, and in some ways, that's what was supposed to happen. I mean, they should be good citizens and they should contribute back to these open source projects. But making it open source was, hey, you can rely on my stuff as long as you don't co-opt it and sell it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now here's the problem: people have done that too. I was just thinking in my head, like, it'd be nice if, like, with VMware ESXi, like, using KVM, mm -hmm. um, and, like, you know, their main thing is, well, we give you vSphere to contribute. Like, you don't have to give me vSphere version 7, um, or maybe the newest one is version 8. You don't need to give me that um, as a contribution. But, like, throw, like, version 5 back at the open source or, you know, like, just allow people to play around with. And that's actually a bit of a thing because... That would be contributing back in kind, and that's a lot closer to the spirit of what open source was supposed to do, is you let me use your code, and I'll let you use mine, and maybe we'll come up with something that uses both of them together and that makes the entire environment that we work in better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But we also have projects that are very widely used that need to have like a bunch of like security patching and stuff like everybody uses Apache or Nginx. Mm-hmm based on the stats, about two-thirds of the internet. It's very close between IIS, Nginx, and Apache when Netcraft does its survey. Right, um, yeah. It's like, well, 
shouldn't you try and contribute back if you're making money on it? Yeah. To make sure that the software audits are being done, that there's bandwidth for people to patch things and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I might be talking on my ass here because like I'm not entirely sure and haven't verified this, but I know with like the NX protocol um for like no machine. Mm-hmm. There's NX open source and then there's NX community or professional edition. And that right. has a much better VDI throughput and has comes with all these bells and whistles and like features and stuff like that. But I'm pretty sure they keep the old NX up to date as well alongside. It's yeah. just if you want the better experience, you got to pay for it. Yeah. And that model works pretty well mm-hmm. um, when it's possible. In the security space, one of the very notable participants in that model was Snort. Uh, before mm-hmm, they were mm-hmm. bought by Cisco, they were selling the Snort sensor along with a lot with a much better UI and signature management stuff and a few additional mm-hmm. capabilities. But part of that was contributing back to maintaining and at least providing signatures for the open source version of Snort. Yeah, do they? I haven't used Snort in a while, but I do remember when I interviewed with them. I think they had just been bought by Cisco, so I think that was still their business yeah. model of like. If you pay for premium, we give you the, you know, the the signatures like day of. It's more or less like that right now. At least that's mm-hmm. as far as I've gone uh, or as much as I've used it. But, well, I want to do an episode specifically on Snort. But a, a really quick thing about it is Snort 2 has been running forever. Snort 3 is still in beta and has been for years and years. It's it's definitely usable. People should can and should use it. Um, if it meets their needs. But in between there, because of some of the architectural underlying architectural problems with Snort 2, Sericata was born as somewhere between a fork and a workalike. It's like halfway in between the two because okay. they did some over the years, they did some very significant, they, they tried to do some pretty significant architectural changes. I'm much more familiar with Snort than Sericata. Mm-hmm. Used it a little bit, but mostly in kind of a black box way. So I don't have the implementation experience I have with uh, right. with with Snort. Um, but the underlying big problem with Snort two, Snort one, going all the way back is that it's single threaded, and when you get to a certain limit of throughput, a single core can't keep up. Right. Yeah. And we're in a world of massive throughputs and big multi-core boxes, even on a single uh, actual CPU, physical CPU. And that architecture starts to really fall apart. Mm-hmm. The standard solution is use a system called PF Ring, which splits your traffic up by stream into multiple threads so you can run multiple sensors on different cores in order to keep up with the traffic pattern. It's a kludge. It works. It's frankly what I'm used to doing, but it's a kludge. It's kind of a pain to maintain. And we've had our own struggles with various hardware and network configurations keeping it working. But I'm getting way down in the weeds on Snort at this point. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is hopefully my next uh, B-Sides uh, um, paper will be that I try and uh, present will be about snort and using snort in the cloud nice. um, yeah. so i've been doing a little bit of work on this so sorry about the infinite digression <laughs> <laughs> uh anyway so monsoon media uh, used uh busy used the source code and made some changes to it and then sold it mm-hmm. uh, and then sold their product 
uh, Fortinet uses used elements of the Linux kernel, and then they used uh, crypto obfuscation techniques to hide the fact in about 2005. Hmm, okay. Uh, D-Link did a similar thing, although I didn't read anybody saying they used a similar kind of obfuscation in 2006. And those two cases are really important because those are the cases that essentially affirmed the GPL as basically a legal licensing array, uh, arrangement um, in the U.S. and German court systems. Oh, really? Yeah. But I was having trouble getting a good listing of violations because it's hard to report on those things unless there's a court case mm-hmm. alleging it, because otherwise you put yourself in a kind of a difficult position yeah. just talking about it. So I wasn't able to get a lot of firm evidence of other cases, but I know that it is a thing that I have heard people talk about mm. as like a problem and a reason why people have stopped contributing to open source or creating their own open source projects is, hey, it'll get co-opted. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, well, so I'm just like, it, there's both the, hey, you're just using stuff out on the internet with no vetting, no contributing back to make sure that it's maintained. And then there's also the companies just taking it and selling it basically. Yeah, 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 exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, turn a quick buck and well, it's a free rider thing. And mm-hmm. we're not at a crisis point, but it's a thing that's going to continue to happen, but it also has the secondary effect of what we're talking about today, which is the supply chain problem of not all of your code that you use for your product is yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So NPM and PyPy are package hosting platforms, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're if you're a Perl, Perl person like me, they are the Python and JavaScript versions of CPAN. Um, mm-hmm. And what they do is you'll have a package manager, the NPM package manager or PIP in Python. And so you have Python and everything that comes with Python. But there's other stuff you want to do. A really popular Python package is requests. Mm-hmm. Actually, I forget if request. No, that requests isn't a great example because I think requests might be part of Python. Uh, no request because I, I just use requests for a script that I, I so did. you had to you had to pip install I, requests. I'm, I'm almost positive I had to pip install uh, requests. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the uh, the the example I was about to go to, I'm sure you have to under to install, which is Bodo three, which is AWS's API development module. Mm. A lot of companies basically write a library a lot of times in Python, um, that wraps all the requests to their API in an object-oriented fashion so that you can interact it more, with it more easily. Uh, okay. uh, basically, what they're doing is they're taking all of the requests you would need to do for your RESTful API or whatever mm-hmm. that you would normally do in requests, and then you'd have to like do the request handling, and you'd have to take stuff out of the body. So you'd have to make create all the handlers for all the arguments and all that stuff. They abstract that for you and create a library that basically says, I'm just making the object of, hey, list me instances. And I don't have to figure out what your RESTful API looks like mm-hmm. because I'm just using the object that they've built to handle that. Right. And it could do some additional things. Um, one of the things that I know Bodo3 does, although I don't know if they do it the cleanest job of it, is pagination of, hey, I'm getting a lot of responses that I want to break up into several several transactions, several sessions, Mm -hmm. and I will work my way through those, you know, a hundred at a time, rather than trying to download whatever size the, um, 
the response would have been. Right, yeah. So like, there's good reasons for having this. And it's definitely not gonna be part of Python. So you download the module of the Python code that might do that. And it can be, and a lot of times is, compiled binary in another language if it's other stuff. Um, mm. Things like AI-related stuff, I believe the, and I'm going out on, I'm just remembering something that a friend of mine was talking about because he works in AI, that a lot of the stuff in TensorFlow is actually just hooks into, API hooks into the C that the TensorFlow actually runs. Oh, okay. And this is important because it means that you don't just get flat source code with a module. You may get binaries as part of it. And we'll use a container as an, as an example, and then we'll talk about how that's not the only way this happens. But you'll have your like base container, and then you'll have your container build, and it'll say, hey, you know, make these changes to the image, load these packages, and then load these modules using pip, and then copy the source code repository, and poof, now you have a usable image. Mm -hmm container image to to use in a container that has built your application automatically from all of the the dependency packages both for the OS and the uh and the application and your latest your production branch of your source code from your local GitHub or whatever. Right. So that's all happening automatically in the background and it's downloading the copy of of your supply chain problem automatically. And right. if you're trying to use left pad in March 2016, it's not finding it. What this means is that if, say, you're using a JavaScript package that has malicious API hooks in it, you can automatically build all of your containers using a package that creates that. And uh, I mentioned China Chopper, uh, which was a thing that I took a little bit of a look at previously. Right. So the same kind of thing could happen, although this isn't something that I've found an example of yet. We're waiting um, of, you know, just creating an API hook, a, a stealth API hook that they just scan the whole Internet for. Mm. Mm -hmm. And hey, then you fight it. Bob's your uncle. So, like, that's the risk. If you're not sanitizing, you're not dealing with that, then mm -hmm. you may be. Uh, getting a a malicious package that does bad things to your development environment or bad things to your application that you're making publicly accessible. Right, right, yeah. And this is the first art thing that I ever read on this kind of attack. In May 2022, um, there was an NPM package, set of packages that were targeting German companies. Mm -hmm. They did um, system telemetry Exfiltration via DNS and HTTP. Mm -hmm. So, like exfiltration methods we're used to malware using. Right. And then they created a C2 channel. Now it turns out that while this stuff, this stuff was found and taken down relatively quickly. And a couple of days later, it might have been about as long as a week, a German penetration testing company fessed up. They were called Code White. <laughs> and so this was actually a pen testing thing that they were trying to do oh really yeah i read that article and i was like oh my gosh and then it turned out just a few days later as i was like 
talking about this as a potential new threat space. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, no, this was a pen tester. Like, great. (laughs) (laughs) But also in May, uh, the Open Source Security Foundation released a package analysis project that identified um, malicious uh, PyPy packages. Mm. And when they ran it, they found over 200 malicious packages. Mm. Okay. So like in May, at least for PyPy, that had been going on for a little bit. Yeah. Another good example was in August of 2022, 10 PyPy packages were found by Checkpoint that were typo squatting copies of real modules with kind of similar-ish names. The the best example they had was there's an a relatively popular ASCII art module called Art. Mm-hmm. And uh, the malicious version that was a copy of it, except that it had all of the evil in it, was called ASCII to text. Oh, okay. Which is not a great name, but not something that you would go, yeah, nobody named it that. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because like they're not going to have the best name, but if you're going from memory, if you're just browsing through, you may and and you've never used the package before, and you just kind of know what you're looking for, you may find the wrong thing. Yeah, you're like, oh, that one, that one's name kind of sounds what I want to do. So cool. You you look at the uh, documentation page, and it's what you were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And since it was basically a one for one copy of what Art was, uh, Art's uh, uh, documentation page, you wouldn't see any different. Yeah, that is very true. Like. Because half the time, you know, you're looking at a lot of this open source stuff or these libraries and stuff like that, just to fill a need that you like, you're like, okay, I want to do X. There's got to be a way to do X. Let me like kind of just look out here. And, you know, like I've often just Googled, like, how do I do this? You know, look through a few stack overflow has found one that I'm like, okay, like this looks fairly sensible and easy, but I'm not a software developer. So I can't look through all of the libraries and everything and be like, wait a second, something shady, like, you know, if the documentation looks decent and then I put it on my system and it works exactly how I, it should work. Like, I don't know the underlying, like security, potential security risk, you know, that could be associated with the package. Well, you just got me thinking, like, well, if you ever run into a situation where you're trying to solve what looks like a relatively common problem because you search Mm -hmm. for it and there's a bunch of questions or bad answers, You go and you solve it or find the real the real solution to it, write up a really good article for it, maybe do some uh some SEO uh craziness and then make that a malicious package. You just yes. seed the malicious package and make and get people to find it by looking for Stack Overflow articles. <laughs> you know, like in in my day-to-day work, that been countless times where I've had to build systems for developers and then Ask them, you know, okay, like what libraries do you need loaded on here? What packages do you need? Like, to make your software run. They have no idea. They're just like, I like we basically run the software. It spits a bunch of errors. We look at the errors and we're like, well, we need this package, this library, this library, this library. Okay, now it's spitting out new library errors, and like they just yeah. go like that. And it's like you don't have this written down anywhere. You have no like. They just go through dependency hell. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, so and I either we've I, we've talked a little bit about this. Um, after a podcast or or during one but the idea and this is a relatively new one of the of a software bill of materials Mm -hmm. has become 
something that we started to look for. It's it's something that is called for a little bit in the government world. And I mean, a lot of the information I'm talking about came from JFrog. When I started reading about this stuff professionally, they had some of the best blog articles. So I'm going to call them out. Mm-hmm. And they've talked about the idea of the software bill of materials. Right. Um, so, so it's like as an industry solution. That's the idea of, yeah, give me a list of all of your dependencies. What do you depend on? And it's even mm-hmm. something that you can reasonably ask when a vendor comes in and says, we want you to do some kind of connectivity to us. I, I've run into situations where running third-party application software in my Office 365 tenant environment for various mm-hmm. functions, you can say, hey, before we do this, I need your software bill of materials. So I, at least I know that if there is a risk to something that you guys use in your build process, I will know about it in my risk management side of things. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm also thinking, so this has happened twice in the past, like, like year and a half, like when it comes to gaming, um, like World of Warcraft, you know, a lot of add-ons that mm-hmm. add to your game. One of them is called MDT, which is Mythic Dungeon Tools. It's used to kind of plot out uh, routes and stuff like that. The original version, the uh, person writing it, it was open source, threw sort of a hissy fit online one day. And then I just found out literally a month ago, uh, G-Shade, which is a um, kind of a graphical updater that you can use to kind of overlay um, games and stuff like that and improve a bunch of different graphics. Uh, that developer also got into a little hissy fit and put a bunch of like backdoor stuff into his program so he could figure out who was using it and stuff like that. And I just happened to, I went back to playing Final Fantasy 14. I was like, oh, I should update G-Shade, Googled it, saw all this news and all this drama and went, oh crap, I'm still running this. Let me like yank it out and put like a yeah. new application in. But if I hadn't, I, it would still be like sitting on my computer. Yeah, and there and there was, you know, time exposure if this if -hmm. that had been an incident i know that i would have had to write up okay how long was i potentially exposed to this yeah 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 exactly anyway that particular example stole developer credentials of various kinds Mm -hmm. there was some other so there was some very specific typo squatting stuff targeting azure models in modules in in npm uh in march 2022 Mm -hmm. in some cases it was basically the same module just in the wrong spot oh really yeah like the same module name but just in the wrong spot Mm. instead of at azure slash whatever it was just slash whatever right 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 in may 20 another may 2022 thing uh there was a tweet by a guy named uh ivic uh that outlined an attack that was basically find a package people use that's old and basically unmaintained Mm-hmm. See if the developer let his domain expire. Ooh, yeah. Register the domain, do the recovery, get the package, add your malice to it. You don't have to deal with figuring out how to get people to download your thing. People are already downloading it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Profit. Um, actually, I believe he said proceed with world domination, but um Same thing. Um, yeah. So JFrog looked at this and identified about 3,000 or so packages that would have been vulnerable to this. They looked for the maintainers and looked to see if the domains were currently registerable. Now, there are security measures you can do to make this more difficult. Multi-factor authentication was kind of the biggest thing. Right. Um, They didn't try and figure out 
what percentage of that set of folks was doing multi-factor, but their big mitigation was, hey, put multi-factor out on there, on your, mm-hmm. on your thing. If you're using an old email address, go through and, you know, change the email address that you're publishing under. Right, yeah. And, like, uh, and update that so that's using your registered email address. Um, and that that will stop this particular attack. But it's a real attack that could happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, another interesting one that was listed was one where they were using uh, the Cloudflare tunnel mechanism okay. to create command and control. Mm. So Cloudflare, in order to reduce friction for publishing applications through Cloudflare, mm-hmm. you're going to point your DNS name for your application to Cloudflare, right? Uh-huh. So there's no reason that your website needs to be public. I mean, that used to be the way that people did content delivery, where it would just replicate your public website, mm-hmm. and then you point it over there. But like, you could still get to the original public thing. Okay. Well, they said, "Hey, you know, people don't like making firewall changes, right? Yeah, you don't want, don't necessarily want to have that the application be directly accessible." So they came up with a system that essentially creates an SSL tunnel to Cloudflare that allows bidirectional communication so Mm. that they can do all of your application replication for all of their stuff. And you can set up tunneling of various kinds with that, even on a free account. Oh, okay. So they were using that in order to establish their command and control channel. And the thing is, to block that, you have to block Cloudflare. And how are you going <laughs> to do that and make the internet work? Mm-hmm. So that was, I thought was a pretty interesting. All right, so we talked about software bill of materials, which was kind of my whole, like, how do we handle some of this stuff? Right. And, I mean, I'm going to give JFrog a plug because I was impressed by the way that their whole system works, but it's not cheap. It's not something you can do unless you're, like, a funded startup or you're an enterprise or whatever, Mm -hmm. but like they have a whole system where they'll basically be your PyPy or NPM repository. Right. And they'll download and copy down all of the updates, but in the middle there, they're both doing security scanning and they have kind of their corpus of knowledge of what are good packages and what aren't. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So you're significantly more protected about getting those things. But this is that whole thing that I have talked about a little bit earlier of we were at a point where open source security tools could do a lot for you. And sophistication with them was at least as good as the commercial tools. The thing that springs to mind, too, is and I'm sure they're not doing this um, right now. But, you know, as we've seen in the past, eventually you kind of hit a point where, okay, like if you're giving them or you're allowing them to basically download these packages, scan them for you, and then host them yourself. Mm -hmm. At what point does it now start turning into like search engine optimization where it's like, hey, here's an extra kickback from, you know, my package, Mm. make me the de facto library or whatever when it comes to using this and like, you know, recommend me as the highest, like most secure option. I don't think that that would affect the current JFrog implementation but I could totally see a world where that happened, where where you went instead of the whole like development pipeline facilitation thing, you go to the next step of instead of just instead of doing what you want and creating an infrastructure for it, of saying, 
hey, we're going to make everything easier on you by reducing the number of choices you have to make and say, here's our best of breed kind of thing. And you're never going to have to worry about it because we're just going to make sure that all of the things that we provide to you are already vetted. And not only will we make sure that they're secure, quote unquote, secure for whatever value of secure is, but we'll also give you development help because we're from we're going to give you basically development tech support on the packages that we're providing within our narrower scope. Right. Yeah. And now exactly what you're saying, the you have curated the content. And because you're the curator, you can dictate who gets what. And then you're in the place to get kickbacks. I mean, it sounds like a great way for us to fund the podcast, actually. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And that's pretty much all that I had. This stuff is becoming more and more common. Mm -hmm. Going back to the Office 365 thing I was talking about is the nature of some of the software as a service stuff that we have to deal with. We don't even get to scan it. We don't get to see the code that is running against our data. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, you're trusting Amazon and Microsoft and Google when you're using their clouds that way. Right. But now any little vendor software that you use that interacts with, say, your Outlook email for whatever reason, mm-hmm. that gets the same level of access to your data to all of your email. Mm-hmm. How comfortable are you with that? Um, and I can say, at least on my side for, for some of the stuff, we don't have a procedure for doing it. I came up with a couple of ideas, but like, there's no guidance for how you would vet those vendors. Most of them are probably pretty good. Some of them probably aren't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So have fun with your supply chain. (laughs) (laughs) Find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.